Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to ACO Watch, a midweek review. I'm your host, Greg Masters, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru and the publisher of ACOWatch.com, the blog. This is the seventh broadcast in our weekly series where we monitor, analyze, and discuss the accountable care organization industry, focusing on the emergence of known market entrants, the developing regulatory environment, and ongoing industry buzz. Joining me today as special guest commentator is thought leader, author, blogger, lecturer, and consultant on healthcare quality and related transformational issues is Michael L. Millinson, president of Health Quality Advisors, LLC, and a nationally recognized expert on improving the quality of American healthcare. He is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Demanding Medical Excellence, Doctors and Accountability in the Information Age, and he holds an adjunct appointment as the Mervyn Shalowitz, MD, Visiting Scholar at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Millinson also consults on web-based interactive healthcare as a principal of Health 2.0 Advisors. For more information, see www.healthqualityadvisors.com. Welcome, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be here, Greg. And ditto. I'm so glad you could make it. On our program today, we'll discuss the state of ACO development from the point of view of the cost-quality-payment paradigm perspective. But first up, Michael, you wrote a recent blog post on the healthcare blog titled, Why We Still Kill Patients. So my opening question to you is, why and do ACOs make a difference? Well, as I said in the uh, healthcare blog, uh, and actually that was a re- uh, posting of something I wrote for Health Affairs, uh, the reasons we kill patients are really invisibility of the deaths, inertia, and income, the way that, in fact, not from killing folks, but from injuring them in a fee-for-service environment, uh, if someone's injured and stays in the hospital a longer time, you often get longer payment. What accountable care organizations do is, first of all, they change the economic incentives. Second of all, what they do is make quality a lot more visible where it's been invisible. And lastly, they shake up the culture of medicine. So they really shake up the inertia we've had. And even though this kind of wholesale cultural change in medicine is not really apparent in the dry language of the legislation, it is, in fact, what has so many people excited about ACOs, both in terms of better quality care for patients and, we hope, uh, containing costs and having better value for the healthcare system as a whole. Talk a moment about an invisible death. What is the nature of invisible death? That, that kind of strikes me as an oxymoron. Well, the death itself uh, is visible. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons that they use mortality statistics is generally when someone dies, everybody agrees that the person was dead as opposed to some other clinical indicators that people may disagree about. But invisible in the sense that the fact that the death was preventable is invisible. Folks who are in a hospital are sick to begin with. And so there tends to be a feeling that either, okay, there was a problem in medical treatment that killed this individual, but they were going to die anyway, or, hey, we were trying to save his life, and even though uh, this awful thing happened, it was unavoidable, 
medicine is an art, not a science completely, and we couldn't have done anything about it. What ACOs do is encourage a systemic approach to all sorts of care that allows us to say, you know what, how do we structure care so that good things are more likely to happen systemically, not simply because we have smart, caring individuals working on it. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Geisinger Clinic in Pennsylvania has a large proportion of its patients from their own health plan. So as a result, the incentives are aligned. In other words, the insurance arm, if it pays out a lot of money to the hospital, or the hospital uh, uh, is parsimonious for the insurance arm, it doesn't matter, it's the same organization. So fee-for-service incentives don't apply. So Geisinger put together a program it called Proven Care, whereby it said to its own insurance company and all the other private insurers at the steps needed to provide high-quality cardiac care, in this case, down so well that we'll give you this set price, and if there are any complications, we're not going to charge you anything extra. If there are infections, if there are other problems, we will take care of that cost. That's kind of what the ACO model is going for, whereby there's a global payment and organizations that can be effective economically in quality and cost will benefit. That's what's so exciting about it. And, and I, I might add, this comes on the heels of what the Institute of Medicine noted is in the 10 years since they published their landmark quality assessment report, there just hasn't been much improvement. No, there hasn't. There's a difference between rhetoric that calls on everyone to do better and changing the financial incentives that really will cause large organizations to change. You know, there's a whole literature on diffusion of innovation. Now, if I may digress for just a quick moment, it goes back to after World War II, the U.S. thought, you know, the way we can help solve the problem of poverty and hunger in Africa and Asia is we'll send in our farmers who produce so much food, we'll show these people, look, here's the seeds you ought to use, they'll do what we tell them to do, and everything will be better. And it turned out that's not how the world works, not for us, not for anyone else. None of us, you or me or anyone, changes our own personal behavior unless we really see something in it for us, unless it becomes urgent. And what ACOs do is they say, look, we know that intellectually everyone knows you should be patient-centered, you should be longitudinal, you should be effective and efficient and, 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 and all the rest of those kind of attributes. But now, your bottom line, your paycheck is going to depend on you putting those attributes that are, in theory, very desirable into practice. And not only that, we're going to work this out so that if you get better at doing this than we expect you will, you'll get even more money. And maybe, in addition to doing this for Medicare, you can take this same method of practice and use it to obtain more business and more profit from your private insurance contracts. That takes quality from something that wonks talk about to something that's grassroots, change-oriented. So, so what's driving this? Is it quality? Is it cost? Is it some alternative mission? Well, let, let's, let's be clear. 
there's kind of an upstairs, downstairs rhetorical uh, justification. On the one hand, if you're a politician facing a medical audience, facing a lay public audience that really doesn't pay much attention to some of the problems of practice variation, et cetera, you're going to say the U.S. healthcare system is the best healthcare system in the world. But in addition to that, for any individual doctor, yes, you're part of the best healthcare system. We know there are all these problems of too much medical care being given unnecessarily and that we have to do something about that to control cost. So the justification in doing this is first and foremost cost control, but the idea is that we have this huge, maybe 30%, 35% part of our healthcare spending that is on treatments that could be eliminated without hurting care and perhaps even improving it. That's what we're trying to get here. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> so sorry about that. No good. <laughs> Life's in session. Um, so interesting. You were drawn to Proven Care, which is a uh, Geisinger is one of the mature integrated delivery systems where they've been sort of trying to balance the uh, you know is this an income or is this an expense from the point of view of delivery systems? It does both financing as well as the delivery of care. They they've been walking this road for a while. First note, that was top of mind for you. Secondly, isn't it interesting how few modeling or mirroring of the proving cure model there seems to be elsewhere in the integrated delivery uh, system environment? Well, I, I, think, I think that's true. That the reason it has not been replicated is Geisinger is both an integrated delivery system and has an insurance arm. And so the folks who have both the insurance portion and the delivery portion are relatively few, particularly when you uh, get beyond Kaiser Permanente, which certainly is its own uh, almost unique model, and, and mostly in California. And they've done a lot of great things in, this, in, the same, in the same vein. The second thing that Geisinger has, and to some extent Kaiser and others that have also uh, been leaders here, like Virginia Mason, a clinic in Seattle, is that you have a strong physician leader. And that's what makes this work, that by law, an ACO has to be driven by a physician group or a hospital. Uh, this is a concept that doesn't start off with insurance, as Hal Luff said in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, a few months ago, but it's a concept that starts off with the providers and builds from there. That is extraordinarily important because physicians are quite understandably suspicious of being told to do this or that clinically by folks whose main training was going to actuary school. Clinicians have a professional dedication to individual patients, not to actuarial tables for their entire population. On the other hand, when you have a, another physician who's internal to the organization who has clinical credibility saying, look, here's how we need to change both to save money and to make care better for our patients, that is much, much more 
acceptable to practicing docs in the trenches. That's what also makes ACOs exciting. That accountability comes, as it were, from within professional norms, not from outside those professional norms. That's a good thing for patients and, I think, for clinicians. And, of course, this is mostly theoretical and on the come, uh, other than sort of proven care examples. This is theory uh, uh, with some modest empirical support uh, through perhaps... Uh, uh, well, you have proven care. You have intermountain health care. You have some of what uh, Kaiser has done. You have Virginia Mason. But all of that is done by organizations with very strong cultures and a very long history of integration of hospital, physician side, and sometimes insurance side. The real question is, is it's one thing to watch five guys moving down the court, uh, passing the ball, setting picks, doing screens, scoring baskets, then running back uh, to the other end of the court and sitting up on defense and saying, well, look, obviously that's how you should play basketball and picking five guys who never played together, giving them a rule book and say, look, that, that's what you need to do. Don't worry. We know that it'll work. And that's kind of what we're doing a little bit with ACOs. Right. So what I was trying to get at is is uh, once you've seen one and there was some joking about, you know, ACOs are like unicorns, you know, <laughs> no one's really ever seen one yet, but uh, the theory, it's something about the theory, um, and, and there's sort of, um, you know, January 1, 2012, the Medicare Shared Savings Program goes in, into effect, and, and once those rules are out there and we understand the details of the program, there may in fact be some upside downside in the sharing, but at this point, the, the, the first generation version of an ACO would simply be some actuarial pooling of what might be otherwise non-affiliated or not necessarily associated cluster physicians who somehow are going to have some budget accountability for medical expense in their service area. Well, that's exactly right, Greg. And the rules are going to come out shortly. They, uh, they were due out in theory by the end of last year, but didn't quite make it. And of course, those rules are what determines uh, uh, how the very theoretical notion of an ACO takes shape in real life. And, and I think uh, it's going to be very interesting. I actually am not that pessimistic about the lack of tight rules on cost sharing right at the moment. And the reason is, is I'd like to see us get as many folks as possible starting to set up an ACO, starting to experiment with what structure works if it's a hospital, what structure works if it's a physician group, what structure works if it's non-integrated people trying to learn to play together uh, to make sure that we get as many people into the, in, in, into the pot, as it were, as possible uh, before we start tightening, tightening, and tightening. But, you know, uh, we shall see. We shall see. And uh, I... I want to go back to your article because I think this is a powerful, um, it's a powerful context for the conversation. You, you write, what, what for me struck a particularly jarring note was not just the absence of improvement, but the reluctance of the healthcare leaders interviewed to speak candidly about why progress has been so slow. Instead, they offered nostrums about the need to, quote, do more or opine that, quote, openness or better, quote, coordination 
would somehow turn the tide. Doesn't this sort of neatly fit into the the, the whole ACO, uh, you know, conversation or the wand waving about solutions? That's absolutely right. So here you are running your ACO, and you've got your physicians there, and you're behind closed doors. And now you have the opportunity to say in private, openly, what everybody says uh, in cryptic code. You say, look, we have an opportunity here to make some money or we could lose our shirts. Uh, we have the opportunity to increase our market share or we could start ceding our market share to competitors. You, doctor, want to keep your appointment book full and you want to make a decent living. Uh, we, the hospital, want to keep our uh, bottom line healthy, whether it comes from filling beds or whether it comes from outpatients. And how are we going to do that? And now you can start to talk about problems in quality, problems in uh, handoffs, problems in safety, all the things that get in the way of a seamless, well-run, integrated healthcare delivery system through an ACO. It's kind of like with the U.S. automakers. Before the Japanese automakers came along and showed that, you know what, you could have a car that lasted more than five years, that uh, didn't need to be in the shop uh, every few months, that didn't rattle when you go above 60 miles per hour, and by the way, it could actually be affordable for the average American family and not have to buy a Mercedes to get all of those things. Once the Japanese companies showed you could do that, the American companies got together and some of their own problems that they all knew about, they started to talk about those problems publicly. And they became very salient. You know, we talked earlier about diffusion of innovation. They became very important because now it wasn't just a seminar on how we in the U.S. auto industry could be better. It was we need to do this if we want to stay in business. And I think that that's what the ACO concept is, sort of the camel's nose under the tent. Uh, you can't pass a law changing all of American medical practice because there's no public support for that. But you can start to make it in the interest of hospitals and doctors who are the leading uh, uh, systems in this country to change what they do and thereby start to cause the entire great ocean liner of American medicine to turn around. So I hear you, and I ask you, will it or can it be different this time? You hear me pause. Uh, (laughs) Sure, it can be. Will it be? Uh, You know, I'm old enough to remember the cartoon when Peanuts was new, and every year in the fall he would have a cartoon whereby uh, Charlie Brown lined up to kick a football that Lucy would hold. And every year, just as he ran up to kick the football, Lucy would pull away the football and Charlie Brown would fall flat on his rear end. And every year there would be a different excuse, a different reason. And somehow year after year, Charlie Brown would never kick the football. Uh, Could he have? Theoretically, sure. So I think that ACOs can be a success as long as the political coalition that allowed this legislation to be written holds together. Let me explain that for a moment. The clause saying we're going to have ACOs only passed Congress because 
the medical professional societies and the hospital groups and the insurers and the conservatives and the liberals and all those who could have stopped it all kind of agreed that the way it was written might not be the way they wanted totally, but it was a good thing and probably good for them as well. Now we have regulations that will put that legislation into real solid form. What does the coalition of special interests think about that? Then we'll have some actual experience with ACOs. Uh, does that inspire other people to say this is terrific? Uh, and so anybody who's a loser is, oh, that's tough. You, you didn't do well. Or is there going to be some sort of backlash? So there's a series of political hurdles that have to be passed before this very nascent development can really take a firm hold. Uh, I think it has the potential to. It's different than what we've done in the past because, one, it's rooted in providers, not in insurance companies, and, two, it's rooted in a concept that at least has been proven in a few different places around the country, uh, in a few different political and economic environments, not just big HMOs in California, but rural Pennsylvania, uh, Utah, uh, other places. And so it's got the potential, but this is a very fragile plant. Uh, and uh, whether it will take root and grow into a mighty oak tree certainly remains to be seen. When you use the word nascent, uh, the, the visual that came to mind immediately was a preemie in the, in the NICU because... <laughs> well, uh, it's not quite NICU. I, yeah. I, I think I, but but I think this is a a very uh, very small life here. And without without getting to the human analogy, I think I'd rather stick with the plant. And uh, uh, there are a few sprouts, uh, uh, little green leaves that you can see above above the ground. But you know, uh, when plants are very small, it doesn't take much to trample them or uproot them. And, and I think that uh, uh, not being cognizant that there are uh, herds of political buffalo wandering around uh, would, would, be, uh, would be a mistake. The, uh, the herds are not very far away. Okay. So, um, sorry for the overkill. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, we only have a few minutes left, seven minutes to be exact, uh, Michael, is... Um, I'm I'm drawn to the whole patient safety versus general medical quality improvement issue. We really hadn't touched on that, but did you want to say anything about that? Uh, about the general quality improvement? Versus, like, for instance, um, still quoting from your article, the absence of large-scale improvement is not evidence that current efforts to improve safety are futile. On the contrary, data have shown that focused efforts to reduce discrete harms such as nosocomial infections and surgical complications can significantly improve safety. That's uh, the quote from Dr. Christopher uh, Vandergan. Uh, right, and, and uh, it's his New England Journal article. Right. The New England I, I think, yes, I, I, would, I think that ACOs, because they're responsible for the expenditures in the hospital, we're going to find motivation sprouting again uh, to uh, uh, trample on the analogy to get rid of nosocomial infections. Let, let's be clear. When it comes to patient safety, 
there is tremendous waste in terms of the difference between what we know how to do and what we do. Uh, I, I've I've written about this. Um, I've compared it, frankly, uh, to the silence that we often heard when genocide was going on, not because people uh, willingly tolerate it, but because they just don't look at it. And so doctors are trying to do the right thing. Doctors want to do the right thing. Hospital people want to do the right thing. But they don't really pay attention in their day-to-day lives at the toll of error and misuse and overuse that hurts people and kills people despite their best efforts. Once it is made visible, as ACOs will make it visible to the bottom line, as ACOs with report cards, there are quality report cards that are coming out, um, it's going to change things. It's going to change motivation uh, in a way that I think will make patients safer. I truly hope that that happens. It has happened in some of the early ACOs. That's a case where the regulations may not bite enough at first for that to happen. I think the early regulations may not force that, but as the regulations get more strict, I think we'll have a better patient safety focus and, and much more awareness of just how much better care could be today with things we know how to do. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, what patients don't understand is all those medical miracles you see on the evening news and on the shows on TV, the, 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 the doctor shows, those are a lot of fun, but they don't account for very much of what actually happens between clinicians and patients. So let's take what we know how to do and do it for infections, for, for drug reactions, for uh, all sorts of care. Let's make what we know how to do part of everyday care, and we will save tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives, millions of injuries, and a lot of money to go with it. So yeah, I'm wondering, we've had the, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals prior to JC, the, the Joint Commission. They've had medical staff requirements for an infection control committee as far back as I can remember, and we're still in 2000, 2011 talking about nosocomial infections and not much improvement. I mean, what's up with that? Well, uh, Greg, I'm sure that we have some of the best committees that money can buy. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I'm, I'm certain that at every American hospital, uh, we have some of the best minute-taking, uh, regular meetings, and committee resolutions of any healthcare system in the world. So I think, I think we've probably done a pretty good job with that. Right. So I guess that leads into, you know, does the voluntary medical staff have a future as these nascent integrated delivery systems are stitched together? Ah, and I think that's a critical question. And the answer is, is that voluntary medical staff are going to have to learn how to be team players to a degree that has not been the case in the past, or they're going to be volunteered to spend a little bit less time. Because in the old days, we wanted the voluntary medical staff because you were my source of income. Your patients, your idiosyncrasies, heck, even your mistakes, doctor. But in the new system, I need you to be part of a team effort, making my hospital-slash-physician network more efficient, more high-value, more patient-oriented, more effective. 
And that's a little bit different than in the past. And that's also what's so exciting because no individual hospital can say this to their voluntary medical staff and survive. But if it's a national trend, it gives the hospital executive a chance to turn to his doctors and say, hey, nothing personal, but this is the way the healthcare system is changing. And that's a good thing. And I so agree with what you just said. And and I I go back 30 years in this industry. I go back to PSROs and HSAs. Absolutely. You know, the days of medical audit and continuing medical education as a way to improve quality. And it you know and I'm optimistic. I think it can be different this time because for once we're starting to look at sort of the cultural substrate of innovation and what's required. And if we can incorporate some of the insights from the behavioral scientists in some of these conversations about ACO formation, organizational design, delivery, et cetera, you know, maybe we can uh, learn from the past. Otherwise, as Kent Bottled says, we'll just muddle through making the same mistakes over and over again. I think you're absolutely right. And that's the critical message that's a little bit subliminal here. This is all about changing the culture of medicine. And underneath the talk about high value and cost and quality, it's really the mission that some of the way we practice medicine now has failed, failed our patients, failed our country in terms of keeping us economically healthy, not because the individuals aren't good people, but because the culture desperately needs to be changed. And perhaps this time, given the fact that the leaders of the professional societies all agree with this message privately, perhaps this time if we can put the right kind of economic incentives in place, a big if, this little root of change will, will blossom. Okay, Mike, we're hard stop. I want to thank you so much for your time today, and we'll see you all next week. My pleasure. Thank you.